0: Hey, everyone. It's John Pryle here. We've got a brand new episode for you that follows this very brief request. So bear with me for a second. I need you to do me a favor. Please go to iTunes, rate our show, and write a comment if you'd like. You can give us one star, which means you hate it. Five stars, you really like what we're doing. But, but tell us what you like. If you don't like it, that's okay. But it's important for us to get a sense of what you all think of the show. Thanks so much for doing this. We really appreciate it. And now, here's the show. Hello, dragons. My name is Alex Gillis. I'm co-founder of Bitness.io. I'm a 17-year-old high school student from Halifax, Nova Scotia. And today I'm seeking $50,000 for 10% of my company. Look, I think that you've started something great, and I think you're going to hit the wall of your clients are going to start using this, and they're going to say, Alex, we love this, but we need to market to these people. We need to send them a coupon, and that's the next level. This is not a full product. So for that reason, uh, right now, I'm out. Okay, thank you for your time. So that's a clip from Dragon's Den, the Canadian equivalent of Shark Tank. And the guy you hear at the end, the one who's not sold on a 17-year-old's idea, that's Michael Hyatt. He's one of the show's hosts and as a highly successful serial tech entrepreneur. He knows a thing or two about what it takes to get a business off the ground. In this episode, it's Michael Stern in the hot seat, our own Ben Wild puts the pressure on to find out what it takes to become a leading tech entrepreneur. Welcome to the impact podcast. I'm John Pryor. My name is Michael Hyatt and I'm a 20 year overnight success. Uh, I started, uh, out before the internet kind of really took off or just before it with my brother when i got out of university so things have changed dramatically since then and over that time i built a, a great company called diadem an engineering software company and then we built another fabulous company called blue cat which is a network infrastructure network security company and i've also done a lot of investing and certainly a lot in the past three years and uh, you know putting money into companies and into vcs so uh I spent a lot of my time um, investing, uh, you know, uh, working with entrepreneurs uh, and working for uh, the CBC, which is the Canadian Broadcasting Company, where I'm a a weekly commentator. And and I actually have spent time recently giving uh, talks to many groups uh, about my theories on business and building companies and success and opportunity, and it's working out pretty good.
1: Thanks for the intro, Michael. And thanks again for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Look, you've already built a couple of successful businesses, uh, both of them with your brother, Richard. Perhaps you could share a little bit more about that partnership. And I'd really also like to chat with you about your uh, point of view on hiring and building teams. You
0: know, so I, I've had the pleasure of working with my brother, Richard, now for 20 years. And we're, we're, we're threatening to start our third company. And we're not really sure if we want to. And that's a whole other question. And the way that Richard and I figured out how to work, and I think this is one of the keys to our success, was he's really, really good at coming up with the idea and, and, and coding the company. And I'm good at kind of wrapping the business around it, although Richard's really good at business as well. But I think we worked because we respect each other's side of the table. You know, I really respect his ability to build a, a gorgeous product. And I think he respects my ability to sell it. So when you squeeze our brains together, it makes us uber human. And sticking together has been tremendously powerful. So I think my, one of my largest pieces of advice for people is to work only on their strengths and hire their weaknesses So or partner with their weaknesses. I, I really don't feel people should learn to code or do things that they just are not good at or learn to sell if you don't sell. Partner with people that are good at that and stick to what you're good at. And as you, you know develop a company you know, you really need to start hiring people that are better than you and let them do their jobs. You know, there's this great saying in business that an a player hires an A player and a B player hires a D player. So you've got to hire great people that are better than you in their vertical and let them do their job.
1: I think that's a really important point. Obviously hiring the right people is critical. So can you talk a little bit more about that?
0: So hiring isn't important. Hiring is everything, so what I mean by that, it's, I can't even tell you how important hiring is. It's so important. Um, well, what is a company? You know, people listen to this podcast. I'll tell you what your company is. It's a bunch of great people doing great things. It's just a combination of great people doing great things. That's what it is. It's a people thing, no matter what businesses are about relationships and building a company is about people. It's never been about much else. And ego is probably the number one killer of an organization. And the tough thing is, is entrepreneurs and founders tend to have an ego. The great ones tend to know how to let that go and allow other egos in their room. And the trick here is to hire people that have other big egos and that are really strong and let them do their job. I think a lot of people will listen to this and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I hire great people, let them do their job. But do you really, do you really let them have authority? You know, if you want to build a great organization, you have to have the ability to take a vacation and know that it's in some people's hands and you're okay. So my strongest advice is to hire people better than you, smarter than you that are great at what they do and let them make decisions and let them own those decisions and let them argue with you so what like here's a question like what is if i came into your weekly or bi-weekly management meetings do people challenge you as the ceo do people challenge you that that work for you do you allow for challenge is there debate or do people just kind of nod because you never get to the right answer if you don't allow a challenge in a debate so the great companies out there have a lot of great people working for them i mean A case in point, you'll look at Facebook. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg's fantastic, but he's always had kind of Sheryl Sandberg and a lot of others. And if you were to look at the bench strength of the company, it's tremendous. Although, you know, the media sees him, there's a tremendous amount of people in that company. Same with Google and same with Apple. Um, So really think about, um, you know, if you want to hire A players, you can. The second part is let them do their job. A lot of the time we don't and they end up leaving because they just don't have, um, that level of autonomy.
1: I think you're right. Autonomy does count for a lot, but do you think that's what retains people?
0: It's really, really interesting. There was this great study in 1972 at MIT, and they gave people uh, a bunch of uh, manual labor, manual tasks, and the more money they give them on incentive, the better they did. And predictably, they just did better as you incented them more for a manual labor task. But as soon as you made it rudimentary cognitive, just a little more creative, just a little more something, the more money you offered them, the less they did and the worse they did. And what was so shocking to the researchers and what we really discover is people and the bottom line to this whole study, I'll skip to it is money doesn't always get you, get you what you want. At the end of the day, Your staff is going to be, certainly the good ones, are going to be recruited every single month. So money is never going to keep anybody at your company. People in your company, certainly A players, are looking for two things, autonomy and purpose. Autonomy and purpose. They are not looking for money only. Money won't keep people. They want to know they're going somewhere and doing something great. And that's innate. That's who we are as people. And that's where companies um, get their greatness from, is people who are allowed to have autonomy and purpose.
1: So you're talking a lot about hiring the right people, but what advice do you have about actually doing that? How do you go about finding the right people quickly and efficiently and not getting caught making the wrong hires? Well, I would
0: tell you the secret sauce to my hiring is I listen to my tummy. You know, I listen to my gut and I know that's a weird thing to say, but at the end of the day, you know, our highest form of communication that we have is our guts. And when we listen to our gut, it, it tends to work out. But, what I try to do is I try to ask more behavioral questions. I try to drive into the person more than anything else. I try to find out what makes them tick. I ask them a question and I watch their facial expressions. I try to see, you know, if they crack under pressure. I try to see how they make decisions. Um, I'm not interested in their resume so much, but I'm more interested in how they behave. If you push them, control them, or if you ask difficult questions or ones that make them happy, ones that make them sad. Like I try to, try to really understand who this person is and how they're going to fit into the team you know what blue cat what i'll tell you it's a very hard place to work at the exact team and i'll tell you why because the people are so good and the bar is so high now that you know that it takes a real real a player to come in and that is a testament to michael harris who's the ceo of the company now he's just brought on this incredible management team you look at andrew workin and you look at uh, the people that we have around the world i mean so you get to a point where it's really hard to hire because it's a very thin air to get somebody in because if you bring in a person who doesn't fit with the rest of the seven executives, they just sit out like a sore thumb. Um, but we spend, uh, an inordinate amount of time trying to hire the right person. And by the way, I'll make one comment. I'll leave it at this. A players are free. Everybody in your podcast. Remember that it doesn't matter what you pay. It's who you pay.
1: A players are always free. Okay. Meaning what exactly?
0: Well, an A player should be bringing so much value to the company that they're free.
1: Well they're creating so much value. Got
0: it. Yeah, and, and I mean that. I'm not it's not tongue in cheek. That's for real. I've never hired an A player that's not free. Absorb that for a bit and you see what I mean. You know, you have to hire people that are that are just monumentally important to the company, that that brings so much value that if you paid them three hundred or or five hundred thousand a year, they're worth ten million, so it doesn't matter. That's the type of people you have to bring in the executive level.
1: That's great advice. Thanks. Now, in addition to being an entrepreneur, you're also an investor. Let's switch gears for a minute and talk a little bit about what you look for in the tech companies and teams that you invest in.
0: I think when you when you, when you you meet an early-stage company, well, certainly I do, the first thing I think of when I meet the people is, what is my intuition on these people? I use my instinct right away. And do I like them as people? Do I like them? If I don't want to spend four hours at an airport with them or right into my barbecue, I just won't work with them. I have to like them because there's going to be a lot of very tough times. And I just... You know, maybe I just got to that stage in life where I just don't want to work with people. I don't like, if I get past that, I want to know the, the, the next main thing is, are you coachable? There's a lot of very smart people, but you get an impression from them that they heard what you said, but are going to disregard it because wink, wink, they, they actually know better. They, they, they actually know the answer. And, and maybe my answer is not the right answer, but I need to know that they'll listen process debate research you know again hubris and the, the, the certain egos can kill companies faster than anything and we're seeing it happen right now you're seeing it happen with these unicorns that have raised hundreds of millions and and they fall on their face and i bet you if you really dig into the company you're find there's a tremendous amount of ego involved in those decision-making abilities or the inability to make the right decisions so i look carefully if i can work with the people And then I want to know that they're in a big enough market and they have a product fit and all the rest of it. But I really have to like them and I really have to think about, are they the right people? And, you know, let's be honest. I've never seen a startup not pivot. I've never seen someone start a company, draw a straight line to success. I I, I don't, you know, even the biggest companies you you could mention, their business plan didn't work out exactly like they thought it would. So really, what are we really investing in when someone's coming for a seed stage investment or maybe even an A stage? We're betting on their ability to pivot because let's face it, you know, your cofounder is gonna leave. Uh, you know you're gonna get sued and you're gonna get this, and then this company's gonna complain and you're gonna have a customer and your code's gonna be late, and then you're going to uh, mess up a big contract and it's all gonna happen to you. And you know what? It will because and that's okay because it's normal. It's what everybody goes through. And so I think we have to judge these early stage companies on your ability to partner, to listen and to pivot. So I'm betting on your ability to pivot and listen and, and, and take, uh, and take feedback.
1: What about boards, given your perspective, having been on both sides of the table, what do you look for in board members?
0: You know, I think you have to think about running your company for at least a decade, I think that if you're listening to this podcast and you're in a startup and you think you're going to flip to Google in two years or whatever, I think you should just really rethink that strategy. Build a great business and you've got to be ready. You, it's, look, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Think about whatever you're doing right now, I'm going to be in there for at least 10 more years, at least. Okay. If that's true, anybody you bring on your board, you're kind of getting married to. You know, a lot of marriages are 10 years, you know, hopefully they're longer, but they're 10 years. So if you're going to get married, you know, you're really going to have to like the person, want to work with them and respect the person. They don't have to be the warmest person. They don't have to be whatever, but you need to be able to make, you know, tough decisions with them and know that they're going to be there to take your call. And, you know, I think that people go for money from people and put them on their board and don't really think about the consequence of that. Um, you know, after all the parties have finished and after the the high fives have gone on, and this is five more years in, you got to think about having a really terrible time sometime in your business. You've missed two quarters, your VP of sales has left and your biggest client just left you, you know, and you're sitting there and you got three people, four people on your board. And, you know, are those the people you want to be in a foxhole with or not? Because everybody can accept high fives on the great days. I want to know do you think that you can be stuck in a foxhole? Like Literally, back in, in World War II, people would dig a hole and two guys would be in a little hole together for like 48 hours waiting for the enemy to come called the foxhole. And you better like the guy you're in a hole with for 48 hours because it's going to get uncomfortable if you don't. So I think that's the kind of analogy I would use.
1: That'll make sense. But could you talk a little bit more about the specific characteristics of those board members that you look for?
0: You have to choose a great investor and great investors typically have been entrepreneurs. You know, I would highly recommend that you not bring people on your board that haven't had made payroll themselves. If you, if they've never made payroll, I don't think they can fully understand what you go through. Now there are exceptions. You can bring on like a, a independent that is highly, highly, highly technical that is coming in for a very specific reason, but largely I would be very weary of taking people on your board that haven't run businesses or haven't been entrepreneurs because I just don't think they get it. Um, And uh, I think they have to know what the rodeo looks like to be part of the rodeo.
1: Let's talk a little bit about missteps and pivots. You've grown two companies so far. One has exited and the other has grown to a substantial size and is still going. Can you tell us some of the things that you've done wrong or that you wouldn't do again or, or perhaps not in the same way?
0: Well, you know, there's probably a million things, you know, but I, I, would, I would circle up and tell you that my number one mistakes and the m- number one mistakes of almost all companies is making the wrong hires. It's just simply that, like you just hire the wrong person. And in an enterprise software company, since the sales cycle is six to nine months, if you make a mistake on VP sales, for example, you know, it can push you out an entire fiscal year. And hiring, again, is everything. And those are the number one mistakes you can make. So getting hiring of executives right is, is key. And I would say I've lost and gained more money on those two aspects of anything else in my life. Um, I would also say that you know I've made mistakes by knee-jerking or responding to things with emotion and not facts. I would recommend that you know people be less emotional about their business and more factual that's such a hard thing for founders to do because you build something through literally sweat and blood and you know piss and vinegar out of your home let your one you know your bedroom and you birth this company up and you fight for it and you fight for it and you get told no and no and no and no and no and, no and then you finally make it and then somebody says don't be emotional you know, be more analytical about your business, but that's the right answer. It's just hard to do because founders by definition are crazy passionate people that are swinging from the fences, but eventually, you know, things need to tone down where you are much more analytical about numbers and facts. And on that vein, I will tell you that I wish I would have understand math better earlier. You know, um, it is amazing to me how many people present businesses to me and don't understand the math of their business. I'm talking Excel spreadsheets. I'm talking, show me how your model works. Show me your gross margin. Show me your net margin. Show me how this business gets leverage. Show me your customer acquisition costs because some of these businesses, you know, the customer acquisition cost is thousand dollars or so big for so long. It's just impossible to get this thing going, you know. And I'm talking thousand dollars for a payday loan or something. So it just never works. And and people tend to be very spirited about, you know, a lot of things about their company, but they just haven't put in the work. And I sometimes think that hope is their strategy when they haven't really ground down to the math of their business. And I think you would find that if you you know, it's really interesting to me, then um, you you will see people walk into the drugstore and spend half an hour trying to pick the right shampoo and reading all the ingredients and then you'll see someone make a million dollar decision about a business of which direction to go in seven minutes. You know, it's an amazing thing how we are as people. And uh, I would tell people to have the ability to step back be less emotional and, and really make much more judgments uh, sound judgments on facts and numbers and unless uh, on, you know, craziness.
1: I think another area where a lot of companies run into trouble in my experience, is with their product, at least the, companies that we see. Maybe it's not really that unique or maybe it doesn't deliver the value that you think it does. I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about product.
0: You know, the way you need to think about your business is that anybody buying your product has a hundred things to buy that month and you've got to make the top three and you're not relevant. You know, I've told Richard, you know, if we build a product and people go to us, Hey, that was good. You yeah, know, that, that, that was a good product. Yeah, that, that's neat. That's good. We're dead. We're finished because you know, getting that seven out of 10 accolade that, yeah, it's good. We'll never make the top of the purchasing stack. And so many products are nice to have. And so many things are kind of not overwhelmingly uh, overwhelming value. You know, sometimes I see people build companies where they're a solution looking for a problem. So this is how it should really work. It should be such a the, the best way to start a business is, you know what? We had this problem personally, so we built a solution. It was so great that we let a couple of friends use it. They loved it, and we thought we could sell this thing. And, 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 and great companies come from a deep frustration and a deep you know, solution. I mean, WhatsApp was created because a guy couldn't send, didn't want to spend all the money sending text messages home to the Ukraine. I mean, there's a lot of examples where people build the greatest companies out of problems that they have. And, you know, I think that, I think that you can never be forgotten. So I think you have to be very critical of the products you're building. Is it, that's a nice to have and that's good because that, that'll your, that's your death nail or is it great? And if it's great where, what I want a client to say to me is, oh my God, you guys, it only cost me a thousand dollars a month for this. I would pay ten thousand, but it's a thousand bucks. So I want to create ten thousand dollars of value in the client's mind and charge them a thousand. So if you want to charge ten thousand a month, you got to make a hundred thousand dollars of value in the client's mind.
1: You know a fair bit about product development and the, the role of security in that. You know that's obviously something we talk a lot about here at Georgian, um, but sometimes it can be a tough sell when you put it up against. Um, you know, features or revenue, you know, near-term revenue growth. So I'm curious to hear about your perspective of, you know, security uh, as, a, as a core competency or, or a core uh, attribute of a product versus, say, uh, features or new revenue.
0: So I think Georgian has it right when they say, you know, one of the things we look for is security first. So maybe if we start this new company as an example – you know, it has a security first principle because that's just the way it is. I think security is going to become a naturalized. Well, obviously you have that. It's almost like buying a car and saying, well, you know, it has wheels. It's kind of, well, of course it has wheels. It's a car. So security first is going to become just essentially a a principle by which we develop software in the future. The question is, is know, how good is that security? What does it tell us? Uh, And what other things do you wrap around that? You know, again, it, it, the, the metrics between building a better red wagon or building better software is, is very similar. You know, do we turn up and hand tremendous value over to a client? Do they say, wow, you know, this is saving me a great deal of time and money and wow, um, it's a lot more secure. I would say you make a good point because I often wonder, um, do people think about security that aren't security people? But I think inherently they have to at the end of the day if you can make it part of the sale.
1: Let's talk about some of the big tech trends coming down the pipeline. I mean, you know that we're focused here on applied analytics, artificial intelligence, messaging for business, and security first. But beyond that, what are you seeing? What do you think we might be missing?
0: You know, I think for humanity, the most profound change coming down is going to be the uh, tracking CRISPR-Cas9, this idea that we're going to be uh, making uh, edits to uh, our genetics CRISPR is a technology that uh, is very inexpensive and very easy to make edits to genes. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of companies that are applying deep learning uh, and uh, to looking at different stretches of mutations. Uh, one of the companies we invested in is uh, Deep Genomics in Toronto, who's a, and they're a company that's looking at the mutations and running deep learning against that to you know, give a lot of information about how those mutations may actually play out. And I can imagine at a time in the future that not only can we identify mutations, but we might be able to edit them later on. And sure, this could be five years, 10 years from now. But I think the the most drastic changes if we came back in 20 years is going to be the unbelievable jump in, um, in biomedical sciences, uh, specifically with, you know, really understanding how to make uh, a huge amount of changes to our genetics. So I think that is just completely you know, misunderstood right now of how important that's going to be. So, for example, we can edit out breast cancer and 70 other diseases and all these other problems. So, I mean, I believe just recently we're able to edit out HIV in a rat. So that's pretty profound if you think about it. So I'm very, very excited about uh, what I'm seeing in uh, life sciences right now.
1: So you seem pretty keen on deep genomics. Can you tell us more about the company?
0: You know, I've never said this about any other company in Canada that I've seen, but it's a company that... It's technology, if they're right, is so important that they would never have to have any revenue. It would be so important that they'd be worth billions just on what they have found out. If they could really tell us what that mutation will do, we don't have to tell somebody in three to five years what we kind of by accident discovered about that mutation. We could tell them right then and there what's going to happen with that, that mutation for breast cancer. And it's, it's, it's really, you know, very rarely do you get to see a company where you say, you know, wow, you could change the world. You could literally change the world. And that's what excites me about that company. And it's it's just very hard to find. And it's, uh, I'm not sure what you call that, but, uh, you know, it's either going to be stunningly wrong or stunningly right. I mean, look at another company in Canada that I'm not invested in, D-Wave with quantum computing. You know, if they really discover real quantum computing and figure out how to get past what they're trying to do with entanglements, quantum entanglements and stuff, uh, you know, it's going to change the the, the planes of, of, of computing forever. I mean, uh, a math problem that takes a GPU 14,000 years, I think they can solve in seconds. I mean, that kind of difference if it was true quantum. So I think D-Wave stands a shot to being one of the most important technology companies, you know, ever to come out of our country, certainly, or not, you know, and uh, it's exciting because very few companies can change the world, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a good point. Um, if, if and when quantum computing becomes real, then our entire encryption-based security infrastructure is um, both thrown forward uh, enormously, but also the existing stuff's broken. Um, so is it? Well, you know, are there other other te- technologies that worry you like that? Like, I mean, it's, it's,
0: well, you bring up a really, really good point about worried about technologies, and let me tell you why you should and shouldn't be. So remember something about science. Science has no friends. It has no enemies. It has no armies. It just is. So whatever we've discovered and we can use for good, somebody can use for bad. So, it, you know, like it's just like money has no creed and has no color. It just is, right? And and science is the same way. So our discoveries can be used against us and for us and, and everything else. Now, I happen to believe that our future is much more Star Trek than it is, you know, uh, Terminator. And I believe that, humans do a lot of things that is completely wrong. So for example, the environment, we're going to mess up the world. We've messed up the world for many years and we're probably going to mess up the world for a number of more years, but eventually we'll do the right thing. You know, I just think that humans have a tendency to do a lot of bad stuff and then eventually the right thing. And maybe I have too much faith in humanity, but I believe the future is very, very good. You would not want to be born in any other decade, but now, in fact, you want to be born in a decade from now, uh somebody like you take J.D. Rockefeller or in 1930s he had certainly no ability to compete what would the average human on the street would have now from transportation to medicine the richest man in the world in 1930 would have nothing to have somebody average today you know so it's amazing how fast things are actually improving although sometimes i think we're inundated with negative media the world is getting better and better and better we've moved further in the past 50 years in childhood poverty than we have in 500 years and remember since computing is growing exponentially you know we're going to be able to do things like we just talked about in genetics uh, and a lot of other places because we have this you know you know huge, huge jumps in the power of computing i mean if you're as your podcasters are listening to this if you just google ibm hard drive 1956 you'll notice there's a looks like a ton device and these bunch of guys pushing it onto a rig and uh, you know in today's dollars they would rent it for $28,000 and back then you would think this 5 megabyte hard drive was the panacea of technology and we always think we are the panacea of technology right? I mean I'm sure the people who looked at the Titanic in 1911 said well this is the biggest ship that will ever exist we'll never make a bigger one you know now I don't think people would go in a ship as small as the Titanic for a cruise It just is like 10 times too small. So, you know, I, I guess my point is, is that we always think we're in an era where we've reached it. I mean, what did the head of the patent office say in 1899? I think he said uh, everything that's been invented is already being invented. You know, he, he literally said that or, uh, you know, so we always seem to think that we're really, really advanced or we really, really made it. When let's be honest, the Internet is at its infancy. It, we're so early. Computing is so early.
1: So, why do you think of this, Michael, that we're so bad, you know, as humans at predicting the future? And we always seem to be underestimating or, you know, misinterpreting the timing of the impact of these major technology shifts.
0: Well, we're bad at predicting the future. And I believe Ray Kurzweil from Google is right on this one. And the reason we're bad at predicting the future is the future is exponential and it's not linear. And some things we get completely right, some things we get completely wrong. I think by now... Uh, I think back to the future movie would have us on hoverboards and car- flying cars and everything I think that was more fantasy but you know what I will tell you is you know we are making massive jumps in a lot of areas right now and uh, I would say the future is, is is the golden era is ahead it's absolutely ahead in in transportation and computing and you know I'll also comment one thing I get is people say to me they say well you guys in tech, you guys are moving so fast with artificial intelligence and all this stuff's happening in the cloud, you're going to be killing all the jobs. And the short answer to that is absolutely a lot of the jobs you see today are going to be gone. But just like when the internet was birthed, it created 10,000 job titles as well. Can you imagine going back in time and telling someone in the early 1900s that, you know, you have jobs like a CIO now, and they'll say, "Well, what's a CIO?" And you say, "Well, it's a chief information officer." And he says, "Well, what's that?" You say, well, "It's a guy or girl that runs a computer system, computer network at a at a company." And they'll say, "Well, what's a computer?" So I mean, it's futile, right? Because we're trying to describe things. It's like trying to describe the microwave in the Middle Ages. They'll burn you at the stake. It doesn't really make any sense. And as we and as we evolve, and as technology goes up that kind of uh, exponential scale, um, it gets uh, harder to describe, right? So. I believe the future is going to be fantastic. And I think that, uh, you know, I mean, things like simple things, like I think are we will live to 200. I mean, that sounds crazy, but, it, you know, many years ago, if I told you most people would live to 100, they, you know, everybody think I was crazy.
1: <laughs> well, it sounds like 100 is going to be the new 40 soon. Thanks again for your time. Uh, do you have any parting thoughts for our listeners? there
0: is so much opportunity out there and an opportunity is not given or granted it's earned and you have to go earn it and you have to get in that apex of it. And, you know, just, just simply think of this, think of this, there's 3 billion people on the internet today in about five to seven years, there's going to be another 3 billion people on the internet and all 3 billion of the new people coming to the internet, are almost all coming in through mobile. And for the first time what they call the bottom billion in Africa are coming on the internet And they're going to want microfinancing, they're going to get part of the conversation, but we have no idea what they have to say. And we don't know what they're buying. and We don't know what they're doing. I think India is adding something like 128,000 people a day to social media. So when I say the internet's early, I mean, it is really early. We really don't have a global form of communications for 3 billion people yet, but it's coming exponentially quickly. So You know, very soon we're going to have the whole world in a conversation, buying and doing things, and then 5G will come out as well. And so that means, you know, when 4G came out, it was really easy to send people videos, and 5G is going to be, you know, quicker, and then we're going to have you know, maybe we're going to be doing virtual reality on our phones and stuff like that, or I don't know, but we'll have tremendous more computing power and tremendous more bandwidth access, right? You remember we started off with these modems that would ding at 14.4, then 28, then 56. But think about what more capacity brought us in technology. But we always think, you know, wow, we have it now, right? We, we have this phone. I mean, for example, the iPhone, the current iPhone, the 6, is 84 times more powerful than the iPhone 1, it's following essentially Moore's law, but you don't know that because you're busy playing angry birds and doing things and whatever. But if I ask the average person how much faster their iPhone was since their first iPhone, they'll say, Oh, it's four times faster. No, it's 84 times faster. Cause it's, you know, loaded with sensors. It's asked to do a lot more things, you know? And, uh, and I think sometimes we don't notice how fast things are actually moving. So again, uh, I think we're going to be entering a world where the, the world gets into a conversation and we're going to have much more bandwidth. So take a planet, put you all on the internet, put you all in a conversation of global buying, you know, and then uh, which is kind of adding kind of a democratization of, of of information around the planet for the first time. And there'll be some countries that get left out um, by by force. Maybe North Korea doesn't come on as fast as they should. And then you have you're, you're billions more people in a conversation around a planet. And then you add in things like 5G. Then you add in artificial intelligence and then you add in all this kind of computing power that's going on and you start to get this idea of a of a much more connected world than we have now uh and then you start adding in these ideas that we talked about about you know editing genes and and all this kind of stuff and it's already 10 bucks to sequence a genome Uh, so we're we're really really uh we're really getting somewhere and i believe we're in the earliest earliest stages of the internet so if you're in high tech right now, uh, you are literally at the earliest stages of earliest stage. And it's a fantastic time to be alive, and it's a fantastic time to start a company.